Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. everyone and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, November 9th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And just so that you guys know, when I say today is Monday, November 9th, that's because today, the day that you first get this episode available to you and perhaps download it or live stream it, is Monday, November 9th. But I'm recording this on Wednesday, November 4th, which means that I have no idea how the American election is going to go. We are still counting votes in key battleground states. As of the recording of this episode, uh, Joe Biden actually has 264 electoral votes. Pre uh, President Trump has 214 electoral votes. Um, for those of you who are not as familiar with the American political landscape, you need 270 electoral votes to win The votes that are outstanding still have not completed their counts. And we don't know what is going to happen in the coming days. So by the time you listen to this, you have a lot more knowledge than I do. So that is not going to be the focus of this week's episode. Um, think of this as a welcome, not distraction per se, but a welcome change of pace uh, than what you've been kind of stressing over for the past um, full seven days. This week, I actually have the opportunity to speak with an incredible science reporter. But before we dive into that, I do want to thank those of you who help make Talk Nerdy possible. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And that's because of the support from listeners just like you. 
If you want to pledge your support, you can visit patreon.com slash talk nerdy. You can pledge at any amount, even a dollar an episode. It goes such a long way to help out. This week's top supporters include Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, June Sapara, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Charles Payet, Brian Holden, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Daniel Lang, David J. E. Smith, Robert Christ, and Charles Bleal? Maybe it's Blel. I think it might be Bleal. Thank you guys so, so very much. All right. This week, I have the opportunity to chat with Zach St. George. He's a science reporter who specifically focuses on climate change and conservation. And he has a new book. It came out earlier this year called The Journeys of Trees, a story about forests, people, and the future. So without any further ado, here he is, Zach St. George. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited to finally catch up with you. I feel like this is one of those interviews that has been on the books for a while because <laughs> your book came out over the summer, right? Yeah, it came out in uh, mid-July. Most excellent, which I know I've talked to so many authors on the show this year about how um, writing, spending, you know, putting all your blood, sweat and tears into a book and then having it be released in the middle of a global pandemic has been, let's say, interesting, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> I, I kind of expected some amount of like like uh, uh, just the anticlimax of like the the Christmas afternoon or something after all the presents are open when you're a little kid. But it was um, yeah, it was definitely definitely a little bit like that. Right. Yeah. Well, and but the cool I mean, the good news, I guess, and the cool thing about doing all of this stuff remotely and digitally is that it feels like there's a longer lifespan. It feels like we can go deep, right? Like we've got an hour here to dive into these topics. So you don't have to sort of, I don't know, speak in the sound bites that you're expected to when you do these quick hits on the radio. Um, right, right. And that's good because this is kind of a crazy story. Like, okay, so your book is called The Journey of Trees. Sorry, The Journeys of Trees, because that is a plural situation. Um, uh, it gets everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it rolls off the tongue. Um, the Journeys of Trees, a story about forest people and the future. And I think at first blush, like you sort of gloss over. You're like, oh, The Journeys of Trees. And then you realize, like, no, he's literally talking about migration. like trees moving as a function of uh, Darwinian evolution, as an idea of trying to adapt and, you know, kind of move in order to find, I guess, a more acceptable climate, knowing that the planet is changing so rapidly right now. So this is like a crazy concept that trees <laughs> go somewhere else. I mean, obviously, they're not like picking up and walking. How do forests migrate? Yeah, um, I, I mean, basically, we, we know that every species has some ability to move around, right? Like as a, as a collective um, entity, a species, um, you know, every time uh, 
you know, a, a herd of bison might wander around during their lifetime. Um, but if you kind of take a, a long-term view of things, um, you, you can see the same type of uh, collective movement with plants. Um, and, you know, this is one of the big things that we're going to see with climate change. We're going to see species shifting their ranges um, due to changing conditions and, and kind of their, you know, evolved preferences and ability to evolve. Um, and so, so I wrote about it with trees just because, you know, trees are like this symbol of um, permanence and, uh, you know, from a human perspective, we just, we go in a forest and we kind of see this, this steady, almost permanent presence. So, um, you know, so this, this story of what climate change is going to do to the, the, the arrangement of the world's living things, um, I think is really one of the, the central questions of climate change and one of the central effects. Um, and so, Tackling it through trees, which are, again, kind of the symbol of steadiness, I just found to be kind of an interesting way to go at it. Oh, I mean, it's absolutely counterintuitive that an entire forest over time could, you know, migrate. Um, And I think I understand how, because, well, I don't know, I'm imagining how in my mind, but maybe just to in, indulge me bison have legs so even though yes on a global perspective like an entire herd or like a whole population of bison might shift hundreds of miles because you know over time the individuals are actually physically walking but how do tre- trees can't walk <laughs> yeah so it's it's the you're right. The it's, it's very much a collective action. It is no individual tree is doing a, a lot of moving around. That is that is true. Um, it's pretty similar though in concept. Like basically, uh, the arrangement of plants that we see around us uh, it reflects conditions on some level. So it reflects if you see a plant in a place, it means that that plant is, uh, that those, the conditions in that place are suitable for that plant when it, whenever it was a seed. Um, and so there's suitable conditions and it managed to get there. And so the movement of a forest, um, what happens is as conditions change, uh, seeds sprout in new places, succeed in new places and kind of drag their species along. And so, uh, I mean, it is pretty slow. Uh, you know, most people aren't just going to notice it kind of walking around. Um, but scientists who have set up plots where they really tracked what is in this place, they can see, Oh, there's new species coming in. So you can track it that way. Um, you can also see it through the fossil record. Um, and you can see that, that as conditions change, uh, species move around and then trees and forests move around. Okay. And so logistically, it's really a function of like how the seeds are spread. So if a seed falls to the ground, if it has something on it that allows it to be airborne, if it attaches to animals that move around and sort of hitches a ride, then finds itself in dirt that has the nutrients that are expected, the the right temperature, the right um, humidity, all that good stuff, and can thrive, now it's in a new place. If it finds itself in a place that's desiccated or that doesn't have the right nutritional kind of content, it, it 
just won't sprout or or at, it'll do it at a lower kind of density or a lower number. And that's that's the slow but steady shift. Yeah, right. And, and again, it's, it, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine in the moment. Um, but if you think about like long term, like, you know, imagining an ice sheet retreating across uh, North America as, as uh, at the end of the Pleistocene, um, you can kind of imagine trees like following um, collectively. Um, so, so visually, it's kind of much easier to think about from a distance. But, right. but yeah, I mean, it's one by one. It's trees floating around or I mean, I'm sorry, it's uh, uh, seeds floating around. It's like maple helicopters. It's, uh, you know, acorns carried by squirrels. There's 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 so many different ways that seeds get around. But um, but, you know, each of those new little seedlings can kind of be viewed as a piece of a, of a collective as, as it's part of the species. And, and when a seed sprouts somewhere new, it's changing the borders of where that species exists. And so this obviously isn't like completely random or like willy nilly climate change has unfortunately induced some pretty specific patterns and also just human sort of intervention beyond climate change. Like we know that climate change is anthropogenic, right? People are putting these um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and that um, along with all sorts of other pressures is changing the climate. But also we're like hacking down trees. We're like effing up habitat left and right <laughs> and, and you know, depleting soil content or like mining for gold and like, you know, poisoning water supplies nearby. And so when all of these things happen, I'm guessing that these are also sort of new, even though they're artificial, artificial environmental pressures that these organisms are having to contend with. Yeah. So if you look, if you go back through, you know, the fossil record, you can see these instances of, of climate change and you can see that they have really dramatic effects on um, the arrangement of species and uh, trees and forests. Um, you don't see a ton of extinction coming out of that um, mm, okay. for, for plants. And and some of that, you know, probably has to do, um, there's some theories about it, but but a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that, that it's just really hard to kill uh, plants in general. I mean, if you've ever tried to like weed your garden, it's uh, pretty goddamn hard to get rid of like every bit of ivy out of your garden mm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, what you do see is a lot of rearrangement and you do see a lot of like local extirpation. So you see a lot of local extinction where a species that used to be in one area is no longer there. Um, and so the complication we're now, we're now dealing with is, is as you say, humans have um, just cut down, I think, a third of uh, or half of the world's forest, scientists estimate, over the kind of era of human agriculture. Um, I mean, if you look at Google Maps, um, I was doing this recently. I, I just moved out to Baltimore um, last year and was for some reason on Google Maps. Um, and if you zoom out, like the eastern United States is really lush and green and beautiful. But mm -hmm. if you zoom in, it is really crazy to just see how much of it is is like actually not continuous green. I mean, you can uh, just see the extent of habitat destruction and habitat change right. like, is just like 
which ones are forests yeah and which ones are like ornamentals that were planted for right yeah yeah Yeah, or just like fringes around somebody's yard that are that are left Mm. but so i mean the point is is basically that that we know that species and plants and trees in particular have shown ability to move around um, and track climate change in the past Um, but i think there is some question about whether it's going to uh, be as easy and successful this time. And so, so uh, it's something people have worried about for a long time, whether uh, a lot of species would keep up with the rate of climate change and manage to arrive in those suitable places. Right, because it seems like it's a two-pronged problem. One is that there are all of these um, kind of human-induced changes uh sort of irrespective of climate change, deforestation, um, you know, uh, depletion of the soil through agricultural um, uh, growth. And, and, you know, like we talked about, like these kind of like toxic things going into the soil, um, pollution, but also just the rate of climate change is insane. Like when you talk about these mm. fossil records and these shifts, these are plants that a like you said it's kind of hard to kill a plant but also this is happening over like hundreds of thousands if not millions of years like now we're talking about decades right right that's a massive difference in terms of like how is an organism expected to adapt to change so dramatically and so quickly some of them can and some of them just it's not they don't have the genetic flexibility for it right right and yeah i mean i think it i think it um still remains to to be seen a little bit like uh you know there's a lot of debate about how fast species are capable of moving and and trees Mm -hmm. are capable of moving uh there was one study from um it was kind of a statistic study from the um I think the early 1990s that said kind of theoretically there's no upper limit to how fast uh, tree species can move because, um, you know, if you have a random planting uh, every once in a while, it can kind of, you, you can take the whole species pretty far. But yeah. I think practically, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the rate of change is uh, potentially a big problem. And I think we're already seeing, um, I, I can't cite, the paper, but I remember reading something recently that I mean, about kind of local extirpations or something we're, we're already seeing um, that seem to be climate driven and not just the the background of horrible habitat destruction um, that this is kind of piling on top of. Right. I mean, I'm not surprised. And, and I guess kind of going back to the question that I was sort of circum of like asking around the question um because i was trying to develop it in my mind as i was asking it but um you know we often think about kind of classic migration patterns of animals so you know birds they might go to a warmer area in the winter so that they don't die you know they don't freeze to death or um we think of kind of classic patterns where certain mammals will hibernate to, to hide out the winter and these are like seasonal cyclical sort of migration patterns or behavioral patterns um, in terms of climate change, you know, is this just like, are we seeing all the plants moving north? Like, like how, what are these kind of patterns that are becoming induced by climate change? Yeah, this is, um, 
this is this is pretty nerdy, but um, one of my favorite um, <laughs> pieces in this whole thing. I mean, I, I'm not a I'm not a scientist. I'm a um, I'm just a reporter. I kind of came into this uh, writing about science. Um, just a reporter? You know, no, you uh, just translate just, science for like yeah. everybody. You know, yeah, I try. Totally easy job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, the one of the fun questions about this whole thing is like, what are how are plants and, and trees going to react is that we it's really hard to tell why they're in the places they are right now um okay which which means that it's hard to predict in the future and what i mean by it's hard to tell why they are where they are now is if you look at a like a range map of a of a species well that's maybe not a very good example um i guess just like if you look at a tree in your yard or something mm-hmm. um so you know that if it's there, that the physical conditions are suitable for it, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, the nutrients or whatever, um, and the temperature is fine. It's not getting killed off over the winter. Um, okay, so, you, you know, the physical, temp- the physical uh, situation is okay. Then there's the biological situation, the biological factors. Um, so... Uh, so there's nothing that's killing it. Um, you right. know, it needs, you know, mycorrhizal fungi or something in order to thrive. Those are there. So the presence of this tree means that the physical and biological factors or, or, or um, conditions are okay. And the third piece is that it managed to arrive. So maybe it planted itself, you know, uh, a maple floating down on its little helicopter wings. Um, or maybe someone planted it. Um, but in any case, so there's physical and and uh, biological conditions are good, and then it also managed to get there. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really easy to say why a species is in a place or why it, why an individual is in a place. Uh, the conditions are good, and it managed to get there. It's really hard to do that in the negative. Um, right. So if the species is not in a place, is it the problem that the physical conditions are no good? Is it that the biological conditions are no good? Or is it maybe just that? The conditions are fine, but it didn't manage to get there. Um, sure. But so when when we're looking at the, the present layout of the world, we can see th- where things are and have kind of a very broad uh, idea of why they are, why they're in those places. You know, they can survive there and they manage to arrive, but we don't know why they're not in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, or we don't know why they're not, why they're where they're not. So what that means in terms of predicting how the world is going to react is that um, we can kind of see, we can make models mostly based on uh, kind of physical characteristics. So we can match species ranges to um, to kind of topographical and um, climatic maps and sort of get a sense of say like, okay, these are the physical conditions that this species occurs in. And then we right, try to like this, project this that. tropical tree is not going to thrive in like Vermont, for example. Yeah. And, and even in a more, you know, scientists will make models like uh, climate uh, niche or climate envelope models that, that try to approximate like these are the conditions that this species needs. And then they'll, they'll um, project them out into the future and um, say, OK, you know, this is where this thing's going to exist in the future if the climate does this but again the the reason 
we're seeing species in these places, but we don't totally know why, why they're where they are um, and why they're not where they're not. And so mm-hmm. it becomes hard to predict what's going to happen as you turn the temperature. Like, is it going to tip the balance of competition to this other closely related species? Is it going to, um, you know, is, it, is, is there going to be some other effect? And so I'm circling back to your, to your question, which, which was, um, you know, is there a, a specific pattern that we're looking to see? And basically, um, what I was just telling you is, is all to say that what we see in the past is that climate change, um, in a very broad way, if it gets warmer, things move north and upslope or, or poleward if you're in the southern hemisphere and upslope. And if it gets cooler, they move downslope and, and towards the equator. But um, kind of in a more uh, specific way, uh, you, you don't see this like predictable linear pattern. You see these really crazy things happen. You see uh, groups of species uh, rise and fall that are unlike any that, that currently exist, or you see some species suddenly get common or some suddenly get rare. You see all these crazy um, things that don't look like the world as it is today. So, so I think, again, a, a long answer to your question, but I think what we can expect is um, surprising uh, situations that are unlike what we, what we know today. Interesting, because like we're not only are we trying to model the actual change of the climate, but we're also trying to model the ability of a specific species to like like how how widely they are able to adapt quickly. Like we know, obviously, that like, you know, X tree thrives in this environment best, but we don't know if X tree with like, you know, Y change can handle that. Like, because it's never had to before, for example, unless we were able to induce these things experimentally. Like, we think about things too, and our perspective, I think, is in many ways, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's sort of colored or it's sort of constrained by what we tend to think of as normalcy. Because, you know, we're out and about and we're observing things and we're making heuristics and templates all the time. So like living, I live in Los Angeles. And if you didn't know this, you would totally think that the palm trees that are all over Los Angeles are native to Los Angeles. That like, of course, palm trees are, uh, it's an LA staple. Like, of course, they must have just been here for millions of years. But until you knew that they were all transplanted from Mexico and that they don't, like they are not a native species. Are you then like, oh, weird, like something that I think of as so <laughs> definitive here never would have been here if we hadn't brought it. But look how well it does. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, that's kind of exactly the point. Like, why are were there not palm trees in Los Angeles? It's clearly not because they don't thrive and, and that we've, mm-hmm. we've really proved that point over and over and over again um, over the last, you know however many thousand years of, of moving species around the world, we find over and over again that maybe the place where we find species uh, is not actually where they do best um, or anything like the only places they could grow. You know, I'm wondering because you've done so much digging into this and it's a little bit off topic because I do want to get into some of the really interesting stories in the book because 
one thing that people might not realize when they see that it's a book about trees is that in a lot of ways it's about people, which that's actually what we care about because we're all like narcissistic human beings. Um, and so I love that because you really tap into that in an important way. But um, before we get to that, I'm wondering how much you've sort of investigated or even maybe philosophically grappled with the idea of indigenous or native um, species, especially when it comes to plant species. And like, what does that even really mean? Because as long as human beings, and I'm talking 200,000 years ago, human beings have been on the scene, we have been like fucking shit up. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think fucking shit up is like the lesson of ecology. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like unintended consequences. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess when it comes to like native and non-natives, you're, you're right. It's, it's not a, it's not a biological question, um, or it's not as easily answered biologically as it is, um, philosophically. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think, uh, I think there's kind of, there's like, uh, yeah, I'm just going to put this on like the local native plant societies tend to be very dogmatic. Um, okay. Like, yeah. No plant that's not from here should be here. Um, and then on the other side, I've, I've experienced a lot of people like, like in, in the San Francisco Bay area and all over California, there's tons of eucalyptus. Um, mm -hmm. And so particularly in the Bay area, there's a lot of debate about whether eucalyptus, which is uh, native to Australia should be in California. Um, and it gets really, it gets really heated. You have the, like I say, the native plant people on the one side who just want to cut them all down. Um, and then you have other people who say, you know, they're as native as we are. Um, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not as dogmatic as either kind of of those extremes. I, I sort of feel like, um, if something was in a continent, like during the Pleistocene, so like during the last 2.5 million years when we had a bunch of glaciations and uh, species shifted all over the place. Like if mm -hmm. it was in the same continent or like, you know, same, uh, let's say, side of the continent <laughs> um, during that time, then it's kind of like, well, it's, you know, it's been mixing with the other species on that continent. It's probably encountered those species at some point. So it's, it's probably yeah. not the end of the world. Um, but, you know, if you want to bring something over from Australia like that, it's it's like, well, those have have not encountered each other in evolutionary time for, you know, maybe tens of millions of years or hundreds of millions of years even. So right. I, think, I think there's degrees, you know, and I think it has to do with evolutionary time um, is probably the way to look at it. Because we definitely, we use language as a descriptive or categ like categorizational tool to help us make sense of this complicated question. And so like you'll you'll hear words like well that's an invasive species which means that okay it wasn't quote naturally here or it didn't come here on its own like maybe human beings brought it here but it is thriving and it's thriving so much that it's actually taking over the ecological niche of the native species, which maybe, unfortunately, don't have the evolutionary or like adaptive capacities. And that's a problem, right? Like it really can't just be, quote, survival of the fittest, because then it's all just like jellyfish and weeds. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's uh, impossible to extract ourselves from the situation. And like some of the the examples I use, I, I talk about in the, in the book with invasive species are species um, of insect and, and fungus that have killed off these really beloved um, American trees, the uh, American chestnut, American elm, and um, American ash species. And it's not killing, it, it hasn't, none of these species have driven the trees extinct, um, but they have made them kind of functionally extinct. So they're not really, they're so rare, they're so diminished that they're not really playing a role in the ecosystem. Um, mm. But so, I mean, if you're measuring it by extinction, then yeah, maybe that's not a big deal to have these new species come over and, and kind of shake things up. Yeah, who cares? Nothing went extinct. Uh, you have actual greater biodiversity because now you have two species you didn't have. But, you know, it's like, well, shit, I really liked <laughs> the American elms that grew along my street. I really liked the whole Appalachian forest of chestnut trees, you know. So, so yeah, I think it's... Um, when we talk about moving things around, really, when we talk about um, almost anything we do uh, in to or or by nature, I think I think it's hard to separate, um, you know, human uh, actions and preferences and, and desires. Yeah. And I think it it sort of reinforces to me this, I don't know, like awakening that I had or this realization that I had even in recent years when I've, you know, made multiple trips to the African continent and I've talked with a lot of people about conservation of these sort of charismatic animal species and what conservation hunting is and how poaching has affected species. And I think one thing that sort of slapped me in the face that, you know, really made me be like, how the hell was I so naive before this was that like nothing is just wild in the sense that we want to believe it is. Everything is managed. You know, there are fences that exist all over the world. Anytime there is a population of, you know, every anything from sequoias to uh, elephants, the vast majority of them have been counted, tagged, are being observed, um, and are being actively managed, whether it's to maintain their numbers, to grow their numbers, or to deplete their numbers based on how we have measured and decided that uh, the ecological health of the, you know, entire sort of system is doing. And I think that I didn't really fully understand that until I saw it in true form. I kind of just assumed, like many Americans do, that like, ooh, Africa is wild, you know, and there's just, and that's not to say that these aren't wild animals. They're not in cages. They have massive roaming areas and they, you know, but but these places are observed. They are managed. We know what's going on for the most part in almost every part of the planet. And I think we've just been told stories about you know, the deepest Amazon. And the, but like when I know when I visited the Amazon, it was like, oh, I'm in this ecotourism lodge. And like, they know exactly what's going on. And they've counted all the trees in the canopy here. And they know exactly which ones are producing which fruits. And, and mm. it, it like kind of woke me up a little bit about how much our human hands have been kind of lane on nature. And I'm not saying that as like putting a lot of negative valence on it, because these conservation efforts are what's helping things survive. I mean, it would be so much worse without them. 
Um, but I think that this idea that like half the world is just wild and untouched is like a really naive view. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it, it goes back to uh, what I was saying earlier about zooming in on Google Maps. I think you can do that anywhere mm -hmm. nowadays and, and see uh, the extent of our impact. I think the only addition I would make to what you said is that, um, you know, as as much as we're uh, as much as we have our hands in everything, we often don't know like what we're squashing. We, <laughs> we're yeah. we're, ex we're super ignorant of like a lot of what we're um, doing, and and I'm not talking about the conservationists. I'm just talking about you know habitat, our impact on the world in general. We often um, are, are probably doing more than we even know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like our our everyday decisions that we think of as only affecting whatever the problem we're solving is in the moment is having like, yeah, like a butterfly effect kind of impact, like downstream. All yeah. sorts of things are changing. And we're just so ignorant of, of, of life. I mean, we still haven't described most of the species on earth. We still don't know most of what's out there. So um, we're, yeah. we're uh, profoundly ignorant, but um, so uh, I can tell you more about trees if you, yeah, <laughs> I would love to. And I think one of the things that I'm so interested in, and I know that you touch on this through multiple tree stories, is this idea of sort of environmentalist or like maybe even we should take it more specific and say interest groups that are um, particularly focused on something that they deem important or charismatic. So you'll have a group of people who care a lot about like this one species. Um, and there's this really interesting paradox that happens, right? Where, where they do so much good in, in, because they're fighting in a way that nobody else would. And so like they're affecting change in a way that um, if not for them, maybe the species might have gone extinct. But then on the flip side of that, it's sort of like, how and why has this specific species been chosen? And what other downstream effects are happening in putting all of our efforts or, or, you know, resourcing our finances to this one thing. And I mean, that that actually extends bigger to like, the Endangered Species Act. And, you know, like the political kind of currency that goes into saying this species is endangered, this one is critical. It's not a, a simple scientific decision. Um, I right. know that you've come across that with regards to certain tree species as well. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria 
bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, um, it's, it's hard to separate the philosophy. Um, one of the central um, stories that I, that I uh, told in this book, and, and it kind of is paralleled, um, there's lots of versions of this, but one was about um, this effort to save this tree called the Florida Terea. Um, and basically, uh, it is in Florida, uh, in, the, in the panhandle, a very rare uh, endangered conifer. Um, since the, the 50s, it, it had been dying out from apparently from this fungus. Um, and this woman named Connie Barlow uh, learned about this tree, and she thought the problem was actually that it had... Um, gotten stuck at the end of the ice age and it, it, it should not have been in Florida. It should have been in, you know, Georgia or uh, even further North in Pennsylvania or somewhere. Um, and so the, the fungus that was, that it seemed to be suffering from was like a, a symptom of being in, in basically a, a, a poor climatic fit. Um, and so mm -hmm. she endeavored to uh, move it North and, and by which I mean, send seeds to volunteers Uh, scattered across the eastern United States, and basically just they planted a, this this tree on their property, and um, you know to see how it did, and hopefully if it did well, it would naturalize, and you know that would be the migration of the species. Um, it was really controversial uh, because again, it's this it's this this old lesson in uh, ecology uh, of you know unintended consequences. Um, Of, of trying to do something, trying to make something better and, and possibly making it worse. Um, but, you know, I, so, so over and over, that, that was just one of many stories that I, that I kind of encountered where there's people doing these things where like, on the one, one hand, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe that's a good way to save the species or, or this ecosystem or whatever. And on the other hand, you could, you can also see where it goes wrong. Like maybe this tree becomes really invasive or, maybe the fungus really is the problem. And then you've now mm -hmm. carried this fungus all over. Um, and we do know that, it, that this fungus, as it happens, can infect other species of trees. Um, so, so yeah, there's this, this uh, question of, can we do anything without making it worse? Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, like Connie Barlow, this woman who led this effort, um, I think she views it as kind of this small thing that she can do because. Yeah. You know, I think we're all looking around us and, and seeing that there's lots of problems in the world and wanting to do something about it. But um, so you kind of have to 
bite off what you can chew and just just try to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really admirable to see so many situations where individuals or like these small grassroots organizations are actually affecting change. And granted, it's it's sometimes still hard to know how what the larger implications of that change will be. But without them, you know, probably nothing would be done. So I I guess I'm curious to know, are there examples where these sort of small grassroots movements have actually spawned or led to uh, a a much larger change or sort of like a conservation, you know, a larger conservation victory? Yeah, I mean, I wrote um, a lot in this book about uh, the giant sequoias in in, um, the, the southern Sierra there. Uh, Sierra Nevada mm-hmm. in California, um, and and you know those we modern people, um, the fact that they're still around uh, speaks to the success that a lot of small groups had in the the late um, 1800s and, and early and mid 1900s, and and really fighting for those, and and they're kind of scattered in different groves, so um, so it was difficult to kind of collectively protect them um, in that time period. So what ended up happening was a lot of uh, individual people um, and and groups uh, fighting for their protection from from logging and um, you know other resource uh, sorts of interests than the the usual suspects. Um, you know, I, at the same time, I also write in the book about acclimatization societies. I can never say that, but basically, these <laughs> these groups around the world that would. Uh, that thought the best way to like improve um, basically they were colonists they were colonial you know whether it was mm-hmm. American or Australian or, or French and uh, whatever colonies um, sorry that sounds flippant but they, they <laughs> anyway these, these societies basically I mean it is what improve. it is right like there are yeah there's these European countries that like fucking went over into other parts of the yeah, world and yeah. planted their flags and, so, and did a lot of atrocities. Yeah. And so, I mean, these acclimatization societies, they thought that they could improve basically the rest of the world, the places that they colonized by um, introducing their favorite species from where they had come from. So they, right. um, so they just introduced all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, so, so those were another, that's kind of like a, a grassroots organization that, that maybe seemed really small and noble in its day and and useful and like uh on board with the sentiments of the time but now just looks abhorrent so i think it's really hard Mm -hmm. to predict in advance which is going to be which but um you know i think i think we owe a lot to um kind of small groups of people just deciding to make a stand Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, you see it time and time again, for example, with the national parks here in the U.S., where, uh, you know, specific regions were petitioned. It was petitioned to the government to conserve them. Um, and sometimes these things happen top down. You know, we we know that Roosevelt did a lot of work and we know that there's like dif- just different regions where um, it was kind of decided. But there are a lot of examples where local communities pushed really, really hard to say, we've got, we can't just do this anymore at the city level or the state level. Like, we really need federal protections because this is a biodiversity hotspot. And if we lose it, humanity will be worse for it. Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, you know, so, so 
like I say, I, as a, um, as a journalist, I got to sort of meet a lot of these people and um, sort of uh, present them mostly from a fairly impartial point of view. Um, but I think kind of the fact that I, that I ended up writing about a lot of these kind of people who are doing what maybe seems like, um, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but they're, but they're doing something. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think at some level, uh, the fact that I spent so much time on these people, I, I do kind of admire that. Um, even if I, even if I'm more inclined to write about those people than to actually like be out there doing this kind of kooky thing myself. <laughs> just <laughs> hugging trees all day <laughs> pitching a tent up there you know it, it i think the big question that comes to mind then for me is that or sort of the logical question that follows in my somewhat illogical brain is that there are these amazing sort of conservation victories or these incredible um historical um decisions that have been made but the way that we as human beings think, we often think in terms of hard line boundaries. So it's like, here, let me draw lines on a map and say what's within here is protected. But then your book is about the fact that migration is a function of survival for trees. And so when we protect, for example, the you know, giant sequoias, and they're protected within these certain boundaries, what happens if and when the giant sequoias need to, on the whole, move, and they end up moving outside of those boundaries? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, it's two sides that, that are equally easy to, to um, kind of perceive, and one being that, that, you know, we needed to protect these species where they were, and it makes sense that, you know, for a sequoia, something that can live 3000 years for that to become the, the, the living monument and the living cathedral that they are. Um, you know, it's necessary if we needed to protect them where they exist, because that's what we're, that's what we wanted to, to protect. Um, on the other hand, as a species, you know, sequoias have, have, have migrated like every other species, they migrate, they move in response to changing conditions. Um, and so at some point, you know, if, if, the climate continues to change as we, as we sort of imagine it will, um, you know, the place where they are currently is not going to be the best place for giant sequoias. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I spoke with uh, a paleoecologist named Jacqueline Gill the other day, and um, she's, she's studied this stuff a lot and thought about it a lot. And she sort of said, you know, pointed out that, that in the media, sort of species migration and like, oh, this crab is showing up in this new place or something, you know, it's, it's often presented as like either A, a curiosity or B, a, a negative. Um, but she said to me, you know, I, I would be worried if things weren't migrating. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so I think the migration is necessary and good. But when you, when you then go back to something like the sequoias, where it's like, we really care about this specific ecosystem as it currently exists um i think that's where it's really difficult to sort of um you know fully think through the implications of climate change and what that means right and i mean the thing is obviously this is a vastly complicated issue and obviously there are 
amazing wins that we can look at historically and just like horrific losses that we can look at historically with regards to our sort of human perception and intervention when it comes to these organisms. I guess the big sort of take home that I struggle with a lot is, is it really is is this a function of of just like barricading ourselves outside of nature? Like if we changed our way of life that was l- less concrete, you know, fewer doors, fewer fences, fewer gates, fewer locks. I mean, I don't even know if that's a reasonable question, but like if <clears throat> we were outside more, wouldn't we just naturally make decisions that were better because we could see the effects of the decisions that we're making. We're just so divorced from it now. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's a rich literature on, on, on this question that I haven't uh, honestly explored as, as, as much as I like, but I think we're like 10,000 years divorced from it. Like wow. we're living in an agricultural way of life. I mean, you know, indigenous people around the world, like the, the word, I mean, indigenous suggests it's, it's, it's like a way of living permanently and like flexibly in a, in a space. And like, it's a multi-generational, you know, not only the accumulated knowledge of generations, um, but also like a lifelong apprenticeship of like Mm -hmm. learning your place and all the species within it. Like I always think about like all the time that, uh, you know, I spend like clicking on, uh, well, this year it was 538, but, um, (laughs) you know, and just like reading, uh, and, and just like doing anything like people in the past would have just spent that time, like, or a lot of that time, just like engaging directly with other species in a specific place. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's like hard to overstate how different that is from our existence. We're just, we're just, you know, I, I know basically one other species really well and that's dogs. Like I sort of get the things that all dogs do. It's like all, you know, you see that species and you're like, Oh, dogs have this characteristic as a rule. Mm -hmm. Like every species has that, those, those quirks, you know, like every single species has, their own rich set of characteristics and people in the past would have known those much better and probably known how to interact with them and cared about them in a more direct way than, than what we experienced. So, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's an answer, but it's just as like, I, I think we're just, I don't know if it's simply a problem of like too many fences or just like our entire way of life <laughs> for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I think those are sort of the symbols for something that's so much deeper and so much. I mean, I I tell I've I've mentioned this example on the show before, but I remember when I did spend some time in the um, in Tambopata, which is a a river on the Peruvian Amazon. um, Hmm. And, you know, I was there for like a week and I went upriver three, uh, two separate times. So I was at three different locations along the river. And um, they're pretty remote, like, you know, hours and hours on the boat to get there. 
And I remember when I first, and granted, I was there during a friaje, which is like this storm that brings in cold winds. Um, and so it actually mm. does affect the wildlife a little bit. But beyond that, I think I had a similar experience to what a lot of people have, where when I first got there, I was like, people talk about this, like it's the most biodiverse, but it was like, where is everything? Like the mm. forest felt quiet and it took literally days for me to start hearing things and seeing things because I just was mm. not in any way attuned to them. And now we're talking thousands of years of that distance, tens of thousands yeah. of years of that distance. Like, like it, even just in three days, there was this dramatic shift. So I can only imagine, you know, like little kids out playing in the dirt and their moms and dads are like, oh, you're going to get dirty. Like, don't do that. Don't play with a worm. <laughs> you know, it's like so sad. Mm. Like from the time we're tiny, we're just taught like, ugh, dirt, yuck, negative <laughs> valence come back in where it's clean and ascetic and not, you know, outside. Um, like, have you had that experience? Cause you did a lot of reporting for this book, not just visiting a lot of people, but like going and visiting these organisms. As yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I just like realized in the process of reporting this book, hang out with a lot of naturalists, a lot of people who, who have sort of made themselves students of uh, nature. Um, basically just like how boundless my ignorance is. Um, and, and just like, like still, I'm still not very good at identifying trees. Like, you know, we've been talking a lot about people and um, which I think is, is great because really the book is about people interacting with trees, but you know, so, so like even after all this, I'm still not great at identifying species, even species of trees. Um, and I, and I just was kind of reminded of that every time I'd go out in the field with someone who like really was keenly aware of every other species in the places that we, that we were and also how those species were interacting. Um, and, you know, I think, I think our general divorce from, from that kind of even casual naturalism isn't something that happened in the last 50 years. I think it's something that has, has been uh, underway for a long time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering about your personal experience with, I, I don't know, I'm kind of reminded of like, I want to say it's Alexandra Horowitz wrote this beautiful book called On Walking, where she like lives in a New York neighborhood and she, each chapter is a different person she went walking with. So it's like hmm. in one chapter, she's walking with her dog and she's really reporting and trying hard to understand and see things through her dog's eyes. Like, why does he do this? Why does he do that? What is he noticing? And then she walks with her toddler. And then she walks with a botanist and then she walks with some like a geologist who knows all about the the different mm -hmm. types of stone that are in all the buildings. Um, and it, it's sort of like you've been now walking for I, what I would assume would be years um, <laughs> because the book is out in final form. And I know I've, I've still not written a book by myself. I've co-authored a book, but I. Mm. I, I've talked to many authors on Talk Nerdy and um, this is a labor of love and it takes a lot of time. 
So like, are you changed from walking with naturalists? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at, at a certain point, I was like writing about I was like, Oh, I went out in the woods, you know, in some draft was like, starting to type out that I was like out in the woods with somebody who's like, shit, this is like a lot of walking in the woods with people. And it might be it's quite, quite repetitive. Um, I, I hopefully I mostly avoided that in the end. But but you're right, I, I went on tons of walks in the woods with all sorts of different people. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I wish I could say that I had like, was a much better naturalist than I was. Um, and I, and I, I probably am in some ways. Um, but as, as for like directly learning the species and things, I don't think I, I picked up uh, as much as I would have liked to. Um, I think the thing again that I did, I think the thing that I learned is to like think more deeply kind of about the arrangement around me rather than just like the individuals and like, Mm-hmm. how things i guess just the ecology and um particularly how that might change over time um and where it came from um i think a lot about uh particularly trees in weird places um there is one fun example i you probably go to joshua tree if you're in los angeles oh yeah um, i love it my yeah. best friend has a house there so i i love to kind of get away for the weekend and spend time there yeah so I can't remember which campground it is, but it's like one of the main campgrounds in Joshua Tree. Um, like a mile out of this campground, just on a main trail, there is kind of this little desert spring and there is a eucalyptus tree uh, growing by the spring, um, which is just so crazy. Like it's a tree from Australia growing in the middle of this desert in california like miles away from any other eucalyptus tree and like (laughs) so things like that um i really like to to look at and and ponder and i think i've probably uh gotten better at noticing those sorts of things that's interesting yeah i I sometimes it's funny because even the way that we conceptualize the question and answer like i think it's so societally induced that like when i ask are you changed through this? The answer is kind of like, uh, let me take stock in my skill acquisition or like my knowledge, <laughs> shift in my knowledge. But like even beyond what you've learned, like, are you a different person? Like, do you think differently? Do you feel differently when you're outside? I know it's kind of hard because it's like, how do you even verbalize this? But I don't know, has this actually shifted you at all? Um, do you want to be outside more? I yeah, have never I mean, I outside. Think... It's pretty horrible. Like I need to work on that. You know, I know <laughs> it's outside. like I know I should, <laughs> but ugh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I well, I would say I know one thing I know about myself is that um and I've particularly learned over like the last few years of just um you know, uh political turmoil and whatnot. Um mm-hmm. is like when I'm stressed out, like really the the best cure is to like turn off my phone and go out in the woods and like not listen to music, not do anything, just look at the different things that are out there and like, just, just like focus on, I suppose, other, other life um, than like, you know, what's happening on 538. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I mean, not to not to just like um 
hobble back to uh, skills and acquisitions, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think I learned a lot in this process about how the world has changed in the past, um, mm-hmm. and kind of assuming a sort of uniformitarianism that you know things will as they have been in the past, so so they'll be in the future. I, I think. Um, it's hard not to sort of look around me and like look, try to look for signs of change, even though, um, and just imagine how things will change, even though it's, it's, as I said at the beginning, you know, if you, if you're not paying really close attention in one place, uh, for a long time, it's hard to tell how things are changing, but I, I think it's hard not to look for that any, in any case. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know, like just very human. It's it's hard that we're like so he- sort of hemmed in by our own evolutionary pressures. So our brains developed in a certain way to deal with certain acute problems. And because of that, we navigate the world in a, in a very restricted way. We think of it as the everything because it's us, right? So everything is open to us. But really, uh, there's a prescribed way that people think. And we have to work really hard to to sort of like break some of these cognitive biases and break through some of these really restrictive um, patterns. And um, I think that, yeah, like going outside and being around trees, it's so stupid how simple it is. But like it's (laughs) profound for, for a lot of people. Like it actually changes you. And we're not just talking like, you know, psychologically but like physiologically like there are measurable changes that exist when you're just outside for a while trees are great you know people love trees people people should spend more time loving trees um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know I, to, to your point about the way that we're wired and, and not wired i mean i wish i had like the citations for this but I think I think there are good examples of um, and I'm thinking of like um, some of the native cultures in the in the Southwest and their relation to time. Like, I think Mm -hmm. there are cultural uh, examples of I think there are examples of cultures kind of serving as an antidote to the very short term thinking of like what we experience in, in kind of modern capitalist society. I think absolutely, you know, there's a psychological aspect of like, yeah, I want, you know, I want candy right now. uh, And I don't give a shit if like, it means I get less candy later, or my ancestors get less candy. But I think there is, um, you know, there's like, cultural antidotes to that, that that we could, uh, we could probably develop, or work on anyway. I completely agree. Yeah, this idea that just because something like it's easy to fall into a certain pattern doesn't mean that we have to foster that pattern. Like, you know, it just it just mm. happens to be the case that in sort of modern Western, like you mentioned, even before colonial and definitely capitalist society, the patterns are so ingrained that we think of them as the way it has to be or the only way it ever could be. But you're right. Like, all you have to do is kind of go to other places in the world and visit other people and observe to see that like my way is not the only way and it's not even necessarily by any stretch the best way. So, okay. Do you have a favorite tree? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I do have a favorite tree and um, I wrote about it a little bit in, in the book um, and, and not as much as I would have liked. Um, but it's black spruce, which okay. uh, Picea, Picea mariana. It's um, one of the most common trees in North America. It's got a range that goes all the way from uh, Newfoundland to Alaska and dips down into Minnesota and even as far south as New Jersey. Um, and it's kind of like uh, it's it's a a lot of people would who know it would maybe think it's a funny choice because it's kind of like um, what's the character in uh, uh, Peanuts where he, he always has flies around him? Is that Linus? Oh, pig, pig pen. I oh, think pig pen. You're right. Linus has the blanket. Yeah, yeah, it's pig pen. Yeah, really dirty. Oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's like it's kind of that tree. Like it's just sort of shabby and like. Um, you know the picture when you see pictures of like the drunken forests where the permafrost is melted and it looks all just scraggly and just over <laughs> those are often black spruce um and i'm from alaska and they you know kind of they signify like wet ground and often lots of mosquitoes and so they're just kind of this ridiculous tree but um they're, they're sort of so uh so shabby that i, I there's something charismatic about them I love that. It's like when people get like ugly dogs from the shelter and then they become Instagram famous. <laughs> like <laughs> It's like he's so exactly. he's so ugly. He's adorable. <laughs> I'm going to start a black spruce Instagram. Yes, please. <laughs> well, gosh, Zach, obviously there's always more to get into than you can on a podcast. I tend to talk around people's books a little bit instead of like sharing everything in the book, obviously, because I want people to read it. Um, the book is The Journeys of Trees, a story about forest people and the future. Before I let you go, though, I was hoping that you would be willing to answer my closing two questions that I ask everybody who comes on the show, like these kind of big picture questions. Okay. This is a weird time. So for people who are listening, and I don't know if I'm going to mention this at the beginning or not, because I don't know if I'm going to remember to. Um, this comes out on Monday. So that is um, November 9th. But we're recording it on Wednesday, November 4th, which is the day after Election Day, which is like, we don't even know what's going on yet. We might by the time this airs, but right now we don't. It's like pins and needles land. Um, so and I only preface that just for context. But of course, if you don't I want you to answer this question, however, it's like relevant and kind of salient to you. So so the first thing is, you know, when you look to the future and it could be in whatever context, it, it makes sense. So whether we're talking about trees or whether we're talking about uh, capitalism or populism or, you know, anything that's sort of on your mind lately. Um, number one, what is the thing that really is keeping you up at night? Like when you're when you're feeling like this is not good. What what is that most salient thing to you? But then on the flip side, where are you finding hope? Like, where do you have sort of a genuine and um, not a lip service, but like an authentic optimism living in you? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think I think it's maybe two facets of the same thing. I mean, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, I, I do worry deeply, of course, about the political um, situation, the day-to-day -day situation, the societal situation, the the injustices um, that happen day by day. And part of what I worry about um, is that, 
you, you know, I think um, climate change is going to be uh, more visible and more immediate than than we often think about. And I think um, to do that in such a such a fractured to deal with that in such a fractured um, society is, is is a little frightening. And I, um, you know, I think uh, I think it would be better to I think we would be better equipped to, to deal with the um, problems that that's going to cause for people uh, if, if we were able to, to get along a little bit better um, and respect each other a little bit more. Um, and I don't know, I guess, I guess what, what gives me, what gives me hope. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's always a little more, I think, I think people like apocalypses, apocalypse. Um, I don't know what, what that is because I think it's really easy always to imagine an end to things. Um, and I think it's just sort of easier to imagine things blowing up than continuing on. Um, but you know, I, I think, um, species and life and, um, everything else has, has adapted and will continue. And, um, you know, whatever response we have to climate change in this generation or future generations, um, you know, life will continue on. This is not the the end of it. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we're, um, creating an apocalypse in the sense of, uh, there will be no more life on earth. Um, so that's like, it just might not be conducive to our life. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, I was about to say this is I, I realize this is like not the most uh hopeful version for most people probably because i'm like a little bit relativist about like human existence like super long term at this point but mm-hmm. i don't know like i say it's easy to imagine things ending it's harder to imagine them continuing so you know maybe yeah. we'll be like uh some awesome society and um you know maybe maybe just a few years that would be great so <laughs> yeah, but if not, I mean, I, I get it. Like, it's, I think it's eschatologically sort of like, you know, apocalyptically hard for people to fathom the idea that like, we could kill ourselves off. Like, that's like the worst thing they can imagine. But and I'm not saying I want that to happen, because <laughs> I don't. But I think you're right. Like you have you're you've become very practiced in your reporting, in taking a global perspective, right? In 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 zooming out and looking at the forest for the tree, like literally seeing the forest for the trees. And so when you do that and you start to think about humanity at that scale and that level, I mean, it's, there's so much depth and richness and it would be an atrocity to lose that depth and richness. But if that's the decision that we're choosing to make for ourselves, at least you're right. These fundamental macromolecules that are required for life and these you know uh really sort of these species that are able to overcome insurmountable odds like they kind of give me hope because it's like yeah we we as much damage as we are obviously uh hellbent on causing to our planet the planet itself is like f you i am amazing at figuring out (laughs) A workaround for this and yeah. 
it's weird. Like thinking about the fact that we might kill ourselves off, but we will never ever, we might be able to really harm the planet and scar her in a way that it takes a long time for her to recover. I mean, we're clearly doing that now, but I do think she will recover. And there's, there's kind of like a peace or like a beauty in that. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I think, I think there is, I think it's um, almost like a kind of faith. I think on the other hand, um, you know, I, I do think we need to, uh, do everything we can to uh, minimize the damage we're doing. And, and, you know, for, uh, you know, as, as with a lot of the people I talk about in the book, I think, you know, that means uh, individual people doing what they can, you know, doing mm-hmm. little, doing little tree projects. I think those are good. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> Do your tree projects, people. I think that's the mm-hmm. Get out there. <laughs> Get outside. <laughs> Well, Zach, this has been um, an illuminating conversation, to say the least. I know it's a very strange time to be getting together to talk about trees, but I also think that it's um, <laughs> it's it's great because it, 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 these kinds of conversations, this is why I love science so much, right? Because at the same time, we can be like distracted from what's going on in the world by this beautiful topic that feels like it in no way relates, but also realize that it's all intimately related and that, you know, it's only, it doesn't require any mental gymnastics to see that what's happening politically and what's happening ecologically are inextricably linked. And so um, I think that, you know, this was an important conversation, especially today for perspective. And I thank you for for um, allowing me to interview you and to <laughs> to join up in that in that goal. So, um, well, thank you for <laughs> thank you for having me. Of course, yeah, it was it was a ton of fun. And again, guys, the book is "The Journeys of Trees: A Story About Forests, People, and the Future" by Zach St. George. And hey, everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.